Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's edition of Unhedged. I'm your host, Frank Trois, and I'm really looking forward to this week's broadcast. Each week, we try to present you with the most diverse group of panelists and speakers that one can find anywhere. These range from theologians to portfolio managers, hedge fund managers, politicians, you name it. If they've written a book, we're going to have them on air talking about it. And by the way, we're not going to follow a scripted, organized discussion, but rather have a free-form discussion so that we can talk about the things that are top of mind, and more importantly, ask the questions that you would probably have asked yourself. Feel free to recommend the show to friends and colleagues, and with that, let's get on with this week's edition of Unhedged. Today's broadcast is brought to you today by Oracle. Oracle helps customers develop roadmaps, migrate to the cloud, and take advantage of emerging technologies from any point. These include new cloud deployments, on-prem environments, and hybrid implementations. Oracle's approach makes it easy for companies to get started in the cloud and even easier to expand as business grows. For more information, go to sohocap.com slash and we can provide free cloud credits to our listeners. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to this week's edition of Unhedged. Thank you for taking the time to listen to our broadcast in a ever-changing pandemic world. And this week, we're fortunate again to have Mr. Jerry Ferguson joining us from Australia from the RFI Group. Jerry, how are you today? Frank, I'm very well. Good to be speaking to you again. Yeah, last time we got together, it wasn't uh, necessarily an easy time for you and I to get together. No, that's right. It was... uh... It was sort of the start of all of this um, craziness that we're seeing now. And, um, you know, we were obviously in different countries then and we're still in different countries now because we're not allowed to uh, to travel around. So it's an interesting time for everybody. I think what's interesting, and then for the sake of our, our listeners, uh, you were very, very kind to invite me to keynote your conference. And that was mm-hmm. in February. Is that correct? That's right. Just towards the end of February. God, yes. Yeah, so it's been two months already. And... I thought what was interesting was at, at the time, and you and I were laughing about it, where part of the presentation was we were talking about the pandemic, and that seemed heretical uh, to the audience. And then 72 hours later, your prime minister basically said, that's it, we're shutting down. Yeah. I, and I think you're probably too modest. Well, maybe you're not too modest to mention, but you hit a lot, on a lot of notes in that keynote that have actually come to fruition um, on, a, on a number of topics. Um, but the speed at which they haven't, I think, which they happened, I think, caught everyone kind of off guard a little bit. Um, and I know you had uh, you had Danny Gilligan on from uh, Data Republic a couple of days ago, talking about the sort of what that means for data and use of data. And I think that's the, that's the really interesting conversation that's come out of all of this, particularly in Australia, because they've they've now launched the uh, the COVID Safe app, and and some of the questions and uptake of that has been really interesting to watch. Well, why don't you explain that for our listeners' benefit? So what do you mean by that? So, um, like with a number of countries, the Australian government have, have launched a, a COVID safe app, which is effectively just a, a tracking um, tool, which helps the government trace where people have come into contact or potentially come into contact with um, those that may be infected with COVID. Um, so it speeds up that um, that tracing uh, tracking piece very quickly. But what's been interesting to see is the the way that it's been positioned and then the take-up of the, I think they've now got something towards the 45%, oh, they're aiming for sort of 45%, sorry, um, take-up to say that that's how it's going to be made effective. 
Um, but it's interesting for me to watch from a from a banking perspective. Um, you know, vis-a-vis every time a new sort of technology is rolled out, we see the same concerns come up um, with everyone. That be that around sort of you know security. What are people doing with my data? Who's going to have access to it? Um, where's it going to go? Where's it going to be stored? Um, to, right down to sort of very fundamental things around you know how's this going to affect my battery life on my phone? So. Um, you know, they, they have to, the public has to sort of overcome those and the COVID piece has given a very sort of um, forceful push for people to say, you know what, we, we should download this this technology. We should trust the government's going to do it in the right way. Um, and the take-up's been really good. So um, I think, you know, if we if we parlay that over into the banking world, it's interesting to see how quickly um, things may be taken up from a digital standpoint um, going forward. Well, that, that was one of the interesting corollaries to one of the conversations we had with your, your colleagues at dinner. And again, this was early days, you know, at, at, at that time, Australia still was just, you know, business as usual. There was no, uh, there was a sense that something was coming. But, but again, the prime minister uh, highlighted the warning three days after our conversation. How, how now... What do you see on the other side of this in terms of some of the changes that are going to occur? And I'm going to go specifically to the dinner conversation we had where folks were talking about credit mm-hmm. and the ability where people were saying, hey, I can, I can versus a bureau credit score, I can look at someone's online activity and I can infer a credit profile from that that's actually better than what they're getting from the bureaus. That aside, Jerry, based on what you see, because you deal with both sides of the fence, you know, you, you now have this two to three months big gaping hole in, in, in the majority of the world's ability to pay for anything. Hmm. How, what do you see your customers and clients talking about? And what are traditional banks now talking about, about credit and, and what that means? And what are you seeing now in the, in the Digibank community and the fintech community? Yeah, it's a, it's a really interesting area of the, of the banking world. Um, and I think it's, you know, it's flow on effects, obviously, to the wider economy are there. In Australia, it's interesting because obviously there's been a lot of conversation, even before the, the sort of the height of the COVID pandemic, there was a lot of conversation around um, SMEs particularly, so small businesses and their ability to access credit, um, how easy it was, how quick it was going to be. Um, there were things in place that the banks were looking at doing uh, particularly around, you're right, in terms of that credit scoring and, and credit assessment profiles that they would build of, of banks and how they could do that, sorry, of, um, of customers of banks. Um, that's obviously been accelerated, but in a, in a world where potentially they can't use the same or can't rely on the same types of data that they used to have. So the, the really interesting thing for me coming out of all of this is the speed at which the incumbents have been able to respond. Um, and I think it, it just goes to show that, you know, they have the ability to to turn on um, service propositions, to turn on, you know, better um, service for their customers, particularly when their customers are in need. And in Australia, it's it's particularly relevant because we've just been through the bushfire um, crisis. Mm-hmm. Um, so top of mind was really around the bank's reaction to sort of um, market dynamics and, and how that sort of affects people. Um, so their speed of reaction has been really, really interesting to watch. And it's been great to watch, to be honest. And, and you've got to tip your hat to them in terms of how they've, they've approached it and some of the things that they've all put in place. Um, the question then goes to, well, what are the, um, 
I suppose, advantages that the the digital bank and neobank space always talked about was speed of speed of um, resolution, speed of service, ease of access, particularly from a digital standpoint. But that was a, a, a real big selling point for them to the market, um, along with you know sort of attractive rates and things like that. Um, and I think that to me creates an interesting sort of conundrum for the market because now, what else can the neobanks go out and talk about? What else is their their USP going to be built around? Um, and it comes back to value and service, which I think has has always been the domain of the incumbents. So interesting battleground developing, I think, in in the digital banking space or just in banking space, really, about you know what is the quality of engagement that's going to come out of the back end of of what is a new way to serve customers, and also what are the expectations of customers going to be like? Do you think customers now, given the severity of what's occurring, do you think they're really going to make the transition to the, these? And again, let's leave some of the larger incumbent wallets. So mm-hmm. let, let, let's leave Amp Financial out of this and, and, and let's leave uh, WeChat out of this for a second. I mean, do you, do you see the consumer, given this environment, are they going to, for an extra couple of basis points, are they going to transition to a new platform or do you, do you see them now relying on the incumbents even more? I think it's the latter. I think some of the things we've seen in our data um, recently has been about a flight to quality um, and a flight to safety. And particularly on the on the deposit side, um, given the, the sort of volatility in the market where you know, customers are looking to just really secure their what they have and, and, and the cash that they have with them. Um, I think what it will do is create a, a, a comfort level with consumers within the market so that something new that might come through may not be looked at as skeptically, if you see what I mean. So mm-hmm. I think customers will be open to, to to different ways of doing things. And I think that's what's really driven this. The one interesting stat that we've been picking up in our data over the last couple of months, um, particularly related, related to trust, and we've always seen that trust has been a huge part in banking in terms of who customers like to bank with. Um, I think, Frank, you know, you're never going to love your bank, right? I think, mm-hmm. you know, we're never going to be able to get mm-hmm. people to love their bank. But if if you can get them to trust you in terms of keeping your money safe, that is the gold standard. That is what you want to be striving for. Um, and I think in terms of the, the sort of wave of interaction and quality, if people see that trust there, that's when they might consider a move. But for now, I don't think a couple of extra basis points is enough for people to, to jump across. And we're certainly seeing the, the activity now where I think between, again, it was ironic because when we were doing the conference together uh, in February, this was just as SoftBank was being recognized for its own implosion yep. and as a source of funding for their companies and WeWork was obviously imploding. And it, it seems now with the benefit of hindsight that that definitely was the beginning of the end mm. as, as far as the capital markets for, for fintech companies. And we're now seeing, to your point, not only the, the incumbents in a position where customers are, are fleeing to them, but it, but it also seems like there are these, you know, we're seeing it on our end on the investment banking side. It seems that there's a capitulation trade where a lot of the fintechs now are saying, okay, I'm not going to go public. I can't get any more funding for, for what I need to do. Therefore, I need to sell to the banks. And yeah. are you getting a sense now for the banks that they recognize the tide has turned? I think so. I think, I mean, obviously, um, a probably cautious view of that um, because, as we know, the world can change quite quickly. But um, 
I certainly see the. Um... Sorry, you still there? Yeah, I'm still here. Yeah, I certainly see that that tide shifting a little bit. Um, I think you know, in terms of where the banks are looking to um, consolidate, then that conversation we always used to have around buy or build is coming back to the fore as well. Um, mm-hmm. You know. An interesting um, anecdote from one of the the larger banks here in Australia was, uh, as a process, they were looking to roll out some sort of video chat with their RMs around the SME piece. You know, in a in a standard bank pipeline, that's kind of eighteen months, two years down the track. Um, they were able to turn that around in sort of three to four days. Mm. Um, so, like my earlier point, when they want to and when they when they can, they really can drive change quickly. Um, so that puts a question mark over whether they actually need these fintechs to come in and, and provide that service. You know, the, the question of buy or build really comes back to the fore, I think. And what, what do you see them focus now tactically? Because again, at, at RFI, you're in a position where you've, you've got some good intel in terms of you know, the, the, the large global incumbents. Is it, is it, I mean, intuitively, is it as easy as saying, hey, they're all focused on client service right now? They're, they're, they're just trying to make sure that their customers are happy, getting what they need. Is, is that what's there right now, is just being there in a support capacity for, for clients? Well, that's a large part of it. I think that's, that's a really, and that's not to understate how important that is for customers. Um, you know, that stability of, of being there and being visible and accessible as well is the other really important part. Um, but I actually think what we're seeing is now, you know, we're, we're seeing customers or our customers certainly looking forward. So, you know, what is the world going to look like when we return to some sort of normality? Um, and what are the kind of key questions that, that are going to be burning for customers then? Because, um, you know, we talk about, and you touched on it, the sort of quality of engagement around service, but also, you know, thinking about um, the wealth propositions of customers and how they want to um, change the dynamic around, well, actually, I, Am I going to go into my cocoon for a little bit and just sit on what I have or am I going to get back in to the market and and really sort of dive headfirst into that? There's conversations around um, very basic things like succession planning for the wealthy um, Mm -hmm. and how that's come to the front of customers' minds now in terms of thinking about um, their own succession plans, their business succession plans. Um, So I think... um, it's an extension of that service conversation. It's an extension of cut banks now thinking, well, what else could we do in terms of a value proposition for customers? Um, first and foremost, absolutely, we need to secure those base building blocks of the service that we give them now. Um, but what can we do to sort of really entrench those customers in, from a stickiness perspective over the next 12 to 18 months? What do you think that'll be, though? I mean, with... with uh... Because on the one hand, on the fixed income side, rates are so low mm-hmm. to, to be meaningless. I mean, they technically, they, they, you could argue they're negative in many cases across the world. And then on the other end, there's this significant dislocation, in, in especially in the United States, where the equity markets are rallying despite, you know, just catastrophic employment numbers. Um, you know, what, what, you know the, the, what can banks offer end clients in an, in an environment like this. I mean, mm. this, this would seem to be the mode. If you had 20% unemployment, is this really the time to tell someone who's lost their job, like you need to be investing or saving, you know, yeah. when savings are zero and, and, and investing is, you know, <laughs> built on sand. I mean, yeah. what, what do you, what do you see institutions talking about? I mean, how do they, 
how do they address this? Well, it's interesting. We we actually just got some data points back from a commercial study we've been doing with um, sort of mid-market companies in the in the sector. Um, you know, the thing that they really would like banks to be helping them out with is talking to them about you know fee waivers, fee holidays, um, extension of bills of trade, those sorts of things. So very fundamental kind of conversations around, like you said, you know, don't push me too much and don't press me too much because I, you know, in terms of the money that I have coming in. Um, but secondary to that, it's I think it, there's a there's an opportunity around the concept of partnership with your customers. So, um, you know, guiding them through these conversations is something that that banks are very well positioned to do. Um, mm. And I think you know playing up on on that side of the business, which is often sort of pushed to one side, I think it, it's it's often led by you know what rate are you going to give me and what fees don't I have to pay. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But the opportunity for banks to now switch that and talk about, talk about a, a value proposition outside of just rate um, is, is, I think, where they're going to be able to, to sort of build up their their cache. It's interesting. And it really, it, it, it highlights the precarious nature of the situation that they're in because the the when you look at the wealth that's been destroyed, when and again, depending on who you talk to, I, I had the fortune or misfortune of talking to my hedge fund colleagues this weekend, and they feel that the only reason why the market's rallying is, is because of central bank support. Mm. So, you know, you could argue whether or not we are truly in a free market system right now versus how much this is just being driven by the central banks. But at, at what point do you see, what, what what's going to be the catalyst here for for recovery because mm. on the bank side I, I don't know how much they can do other than just being a utility and yeah. and keeping the doors open and letting folks know that they have access to their money but but uh you know and again from a credit standpoint i, I you know and again forgive me i don't mean to be a counterpoint i just don't see them doing anything here that's going to be that innovative or risky or thought leadership unless the government tells them to do something so, yeah. so, so to your point if there's going to be a you know two three six month forgiveness cycle to debt, I don't see the banks doing that of their own volition. Well, no, you're right. I think a lot of that will be led by by the government putting pressure down that path, and it's hard to be innovative in a in this sort of environment as well because often that comes with a there's a risk associated with that, um, which I don't think anybody's willing to take. I think the catalyst, from my point of view, will be around. Um, a sense of certainty coming back into the market from a consumer standpoint, um, from an end user standpoint. Once they have a bit more certainty around the path out, um, the way forward, the sort of return to back to work for those that can, I think that's that's a big part of it. Um, that will be a, a bit of a turning point. I don't see the banks actually being able to sort of change the game at all. You're right to say that. I think they will be... Um, you know, doing everything they can to sustain the, the customers that they have and help them out where they can. Um, and then they will wait for the sort of market to lead them in terms of, of how aggressive they start to become on, on new propositions. Um, and a, oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, sorry. Go on. Yep. And, and around this, Jerry, where, because again, a, a good portion of our listeners are Americans. So from mm-hmm. your standpoint in Australia, how, Part of the post-COVID world is who's going to come out of the gates first. Yeah. And the sense right now, and again, I'll, I'll say what you won't say. You're going to be polite with me. But 
I, I don't think the United States is going to come out of this for at least 12 to 18 months. I think the, the U.S. is right now almost totally dependent on when there's a vaccine or if there's a vaccine. And when you look at what Asia has done, and I'm, and I'm grouping Australia, New Zealand into that, sure. where you know there has been overall a, a very strong heightened sense of pragmatism regarding this is what you need to do. I mean, even here in Singapore, despite some of the headlines, the, the reality is Singapore has this under control. And what, what do you, are we now moving into a world where post-COVID, the U.S. becomes or has become less relevant in Asia? And what, what, what's the sense twofold? One, from your standpoint in Australia, what are your colleagues saying about the U.S. and Australia? And then two, what are you hearing from your clients globally? Yeah, I think it's an interesting one. I think personally, we often have a bit of a, um, I don't know whether halo effect is the right word, but, you know, being linked in with with, Asia, with the US as we are strategically and, and economically, um, how that affects us in terms of our ability to, to sort of trade with, with China, basically. So, you know, there's a lot of um, posturing and you would have seen, you know, globally there's some conversations going around um, which are now starting to, to percolate in Australia about... Um, our government pushing China for a bit more of clarity around um, the origins of the, the virus. Um, mm-hmm. And they've pushed back, China have started pushing back in terms of threatening some um, some trade blocks, threatening some, some tariffs, uh, particularly on our agricultural sector, um, which will make a lot of folks here very nervous, and particularly the government, because it's such a, a huge part of our, um, our GDP and, and also the way that um, the businesses work here. So... Um, it's a difficult one and in a way most of that is usually driven by the US leading and, and sort of posturing around the region if you like um, and, and us following suit but I think potentially there's an opportunity for us to carve out our own conversations here um, to your point where the, the US is still sort of getting its house in order um, with the Asian markets a little bit more advanced in that sense and creating a stronger direct tie um, within those nations. And from the banking industry, I think that's really important because if you talk about top top themes in the market at the moment, the ideas around cross-border um, spend, cross-border um, immigration, um, what that means from a tourism perspective, but also education, all of those things have, have real banking needs attached to them. Um, and if those can get back on track, then, then that will strive to give a lot of certainty to the market as well. So the banks are very interested in that side of things. How, how do you see the, and, and last question here, because you've, you've let me politely monopolize your morning. How, what do you see, because in, in prior broadcasts with you and I, we, we've always talked about bigger, better as it relates to fintech. Mm. But let me ask you this question has two parts. One, during COVID, what have been the fintech implementations that you've seen where you've said, you know what, hands down, given our large incumbent clients, had they not done ABC, they would have been toast in, in this environment. So what, what did they do that, you know, saved them through the crisis as it relates to fintech? And then part two is post-crisis, do you see any other innovations coming? Do you see any other changes? You know, the, like, for example, do you see the, the rules regarding work changing? Because I think that was one of the other things that surprised the banks was the fact that, hey, with everybody working from home, for the most part, everything's still working. 
mm. and, and, and the systems work. So kind of pre and post, what, what were the things that stood out to you? Uh, if I could ask you that as a twofold question. Yeah, I think just on your first point, were you asking about what the fintechs had done uh, specifically or what the banks had done? What, what have the banks implemented where we're now with the benefit of hindsight, they're saying there, but for the grace of God, I did that. Yeah. What, what were the innovations that they implemented that actually now during COVID have, have saved them or, or, or helped them along? Yeah. Well, I'm not sure that they'd be, be classed as innovations, but certainly they had, and this is also, and don't forget in Australia, they had a, a Royal Commission um, sort of 18 months ago, which really put the hammer down on a lot of the practices of the banks. Um, so they were already looking very closely at their own practices in terms of, you know, how they could um, work with their credit policies, how they could work with their ability to, to assess customers, the speed at which they could do that within the frameworks they were provided. I think the thing that really helped the banks was the knowledge of what they, what they had in their arsenal um, as a function of the, world, the Royal Commission asking them to look internally. Um, mm-hmm. That helped them speed up their response to a lot of this. And that, as I said before, was, was the big thing that used to hamper the customers. We always saw fintechs coming in at the edges and playing in the peripherals around, you know, the onboarding process for such and such is too slow, but here's a fintech that can create that and, and make it way uh, much faster. Um, so I think that that process of the banks was was a real sort of shot in the arm for them to be able to say, hey, we can actually we can actually respond here and we can respond positively. Um, the other piece of that is they also had a, a large amount of work in the background going on around, you know, just general branding. And and off the back of the bushfires, again, they were challenged around that. And so they already had a lot of things in place in terms of community outreach. And that really strengthened the trust and uh, the the strength of brand um, that a lot of these customers had in the market. So I think that was the, that was the two things that kind of saved them and said, you know, we're here, we're here and we're able to respond and help you out because we are, um, you know, the, the bank that we are. So I think that was that was that first bit, and I've forgotten your the second part of your question. So if we could, oh, what's going to happen post? Yeah. Um, yep. So, yeah, I think it'll be it'll be interesting to see where where that where that plays out and how long that kind of continues on. Um, and then, as you say, where the sort of um, where the next pain point will develop in that customer um, journey, because mm-hmm. that'll be where the fintechs will start to. To, um, to congregate around again and they'll find that pain point and they'll build for solutions in that space too. Um, and then it's about how quickly will the banks recognize those pain points and how quickly will they fix them? You know, it's interesting. I, I, and to that point, I, uh, it's an interesting uh, comparison, but I found myself this weekend pointing to the robot dog spot that was uh, running around mm-hmm. here in Singapore and uh, effectively taking over for the you know, people who were acting as ambassadors and quasi policemen trying yep. to enforce social distancing and what have you. So it, it seems kind of ironic, but but we may have seen an acceleration towards some of the digitization and 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 the removal of of certain roles and functions. Cause I, you know, the the and I, I won't have you answer this because I know it puts you somewhat at a conflict with your clients, but my gut tells me that deep down there are probably some senior executives now looking at headcount saying, hey, we were able to keep running the trains on time. And do we really need this headcount to do this? And, and I think those hard questions are now going to be asked uh, in, a, in a post-COVID world. And I'm, um, But again, we'll see. We'll see. It's one of the advantages and disadvantages. Yeah. Well, I have one point on that, Frank. You're right. I, I won't answer that directly. But 
<laughs> I always uh, I always call back to my story about the uh, the robot bellboys in the Japanese hotel who got fired because they couldn't go upstairs. So <laughs> that's right. That's right. You know, uh, very true. Well there's said. always a place well for said. humans. <laughs> well said. Well, Jerry, again, a pleasure as always. I'm I'm uh, uh, looking forward to meeting again face to face. Hopefully. As absurd as this sounds, hopefully we'll be able to do that this year. Yeah, I hope so, Frank. Great to talk to you. Same here, my friend. And for our listeners, thank you again for tuning in to this week's edition of Unhedged in a COVID-19 world. And we will look forward to talking with you again in the upcoming week and in the interim. Please be safe, keep a safe distance, and be healthy. Jerry, thanks again. Have a great week. Thanks, Frank. Thanks, Frank.